Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of Reverb. We're here in Pittsburgh on a dark and stormy evening. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Calvin Pollock. Uh, hi, how's it going? And Caitlin Rossi. Hello, Alex. You sound like you have a little bit of an Irish brogue today. Oh, that's not what I meant to do, but I guess if that's <laughs> the way we're going, we're going to do characters on this show, are we? <laughs> Also, I need to push back here. I don't really think it's the evening. It's about 4.35 p.m. Uh, I, I, I consider the evening to start at 5 p.m. Sorry to be a stickler for factual accuracy, but we are going to be talking about truth You're and right. uh, fiction on this show, and I just wanted to put out an alternative truth claim there. Well, I really appreciate your dedication to the truth, Calvin. So the truth of the matter is today we're here in the Reverb studio talking about a genre that has become very popular, uh, particularly over, it seems, the last decade or two. Uh, there's been kind of an explosion of different cultural products that are talking about this, uh, this sort of general topic that has been around for a long time. We're talking about true crime, specifically different kinds of true crime genres, and taking a look at what exactly it is that makes this genre popular uh, with a mass audience and what are they doing rhetorically is kind of a sub-question that we're, that we're asking with this episode. So I guess we can just kind of start off our conversation talking about what are some true crime shows that we have seen? Like, what are the ones that kind of pique our interests the most? Caitlin, do you want to start us off? Yeah, so I'm sort of an old-fashioned true crimer because I know really well all the kind of greatest hits of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Yeah. John Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, Menendez Brothers. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty well versed in in those cases. Interesting. What what brought you to those cases originally? What made them interesting for you? So, I think that after consuming something true crime, we feel like experts, part lawyer, part psychologist, part detective, crime novelist. So it's this low stakes platform to get a little thrill and to make judgments. We all like making judgments, but you're kind of just watching Netflix. So it's a safe place to do that. But it's kind of rewarding because it makes you, I think it makes us feel smarter. Like we're that, that last member of the jury, but we of course, no more than that original jury did. Fascinating. So what are you listening to right now, Caitlin? Right now? Well, uh, I I usually re-listen to, to Serial at intervals because it just mm-hmm. relaxes me, actually. When I hear when I hear that tinny, jaunty, eerie theme song, just it just relaxes me. Yeah, let's put that in the background and post here. Yes. So, Calvin, how about you? What do you like about true crime? So, um, I guess, yeah, I'll just be completely frank. I'm not a fan of true crime. Like, it's not something. Get out. Get out of this room. I know. Well, (laughs) at least so I thought until I dug a little more deeply into, like, the diversity of the genre that there really are a lot of different subgenres of true crime. So, unlike Caitlin, I have not become fascinated with certain murderers or or like certain like true crime cases 
I think I've consumed some true crime cultural products and enjoyed them. Like I was a huge fan of the first season of Serial. Like when that came out, every week I was like downloading it as soon as it came out. I was psyched about it. And I'm a huge fan of crime documentaries. Like Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, I've recently gotten into some some of the more recent true crime that 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 is a little more critical of the criminal justice system. So as a contemporary genre that introduces, you know, context and like journalistic truth digging on like criminal cases of public interest, I think it's a really powerful cultural phenomenon. Well, I think that true crime can be and and was for so long just good versus evil, guilty versus innocent, but something like serial explores the liminal space where we're basically just talking about reasonable doubt. Yeah. And so you get the sensation of the actual crime, but then it's the intrigue of like maybe it didn't go down like that. Right. So there's like a there's another layer of crime. There's the corruption. Um, and so there's these two standards of, of criminality and, and law and order and good versus evil where there was the original judgment handed down by the system and then there's this kind of retrospective judgment that we're invited to make as listeners hearing the journalist reconstruct the story and what might have gone wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, for for my part at least, that's what became so engrossing about certain true crime stories. Like, for example, I was really drawn to uh, Making a Murderer when that first came out. I've seen the first season of it. I, I basically blazed through the entire first season when it originally dropped because it was just such a, a compelling, engrossing narrative. Right. Like you, and and the way, we can talk about this a little bit as we get into our discussion too. It has a lot to do with the, the structure of the medium too, whether that's a documentary or a docu-series on Netflix, a podcast. They have these genre features that I think are very compelling to hook you in and keep you engrossed in this story to... And and the knowledge that it that it is all real that it's based in some kind of factual reality I think is a very compelling part of it as well. It's not just a fictional world that you kind of lose yourself in, but it's somebody else's reality that you are uh, becoming kind of engrossed in. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That's what I found really compelling about it. Yeah, the one that I forgot to mention that I I watched preparing for this episode actually is a very recent series on Netflix called Murder Mountain. Yeah, which is amazing it's flawed very flawed (laughs) but so fascinating because it's about humboldt county california which is where 80 percent of the black market marijuana that is consumed in the united states is grown and basically there have been these really intense conflicts with law enforcement that have created kind of a wild west situation up in this county and it's it follows a particular missing persons case in that area and one of the things one of the narrative techniques that makes it so compelling is that it switches back and forth between when he first went missing and more contemporary developments in the legal system there with legalization and how it's creating new kinds of conflicts and how those new conflicts are producing new evidence about this case from 2013 so you have this kind of non-linear storytelling structure that's reminiscent of almost like a Tarantino film or a, you know a film that's like intentionally told not in sequen- sequential order that eventually comes together in the finale so yeah so as you, just to that was just to add on to what you were saying about 
the various narrative techniques that can make these shows and podcasts so compelling. Absolutely. There, there is that element of examining an old case, something that has already been yeah, like a ostensibly case. foreclosed, exactly, yeah. where all of a sudden now we have some new evidence that brings something else to light. That's, I mean, it almost sort of lends itself to that kind of narrative structure of moving back and forth temporally between the past and the present mm-hmm. that makes some of the, these things so interesting. I, can you think of any other examples of shows that do something kind of interesting like that? I mean, I think Serial does. Sarah Kane, it kind of, especially in the first season of Serial, continually finds these kind of new breadcrumbs that shade the case in a different light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially because when they started recording recording it, they didn't have an ending, mm-hmm. so they were yeah they were just like going at the same pace that we were listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they and they did integrate some elements of like audience participation into yeah, that too, didn't yeah. they? Were they soliciting feedback or or other like little breadcrumbs from from listeners as they were going along? Yeah, like there were people calling in saying that they had heard the podcast and then they actually got interviewed in a later episode. Yeah, they had evidence to contribute. Yeah, and I'd like to transition here into the question of how we define true crime formally because. This is a really interesting question. And even like telling people that we were going to be doing this, I had conversations with people where they were bringing up examples where I was unsure if I agreed that those things were true crime. And so to circle back to Serial, what I think is so interesting about Serial and probably why it almost revolutionized the genre and started the current the current era of true crime is that Serial really takes you behind the curtain of this one journalist's evidence gathering and analysis process and that's almost the rising tension and action of the show is is her own discovery process and her um, wrestling with the facts of this case and her own kind of personal and at times almost like creepily close relationship to Adnan Syed so you know is that essential to true crime is you know that that layer of like putting you in the shoes of this investigator and this journalist or you know or is that a new innovation that you know we wouldn't necessarily call integral to the genre? That's kind of a fascinating distinction because, I mean, I think that new media like, well, I guess this could have potentially been done with radio in the past, but you know the the medium of like a of like a weekly podcast that's in the age of the internet where people can easily find this stuff and participate kind of facilitates this new dynamic of you know participating with your audience and things like that. I tend to take a more, I guess, sort of, I don't know if I would call it an ecumenical definition of true crime, but anything that is about a true crime, I say, would probably fit the fit the mold in a sense, right? As long as it has to be about, about a crime that happened and it does some kind of uh, storytelling or reporting around it. I guess the question then is, are we trying to distinguish between true crime as a nonfiction genre and journalism or... Well, I think that's an important question because I don't think we would say that like the local crime section of the of the nightly news is true crime. Why and I don't, not? Well, uh, tell you why not. Yeah, why <laughs> not? You tell no, no, no. Go ahead. I, I... Well, I'm personally pretty loose about my definition, and I usually don't worry about whether a show, for example, is is getting too far from from the truth because I'll then go back and consume everything that's published about a certain case because I get really into it. So I do my own fact checking. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, that's that's good to do. 
I think it becomes a little bit. I I, I still think it's important to delineate between subgenres of true crime, though, too, right? So we talked about serial, and perhaps we could talk about you know making a murderer as both being this kind of you know documentary style journalism more than uh, it's not the same as true crime uh, nonfiction writing like a true crime book which used to kind of be the dominant medium for this kind of thing in the past we could distinguish that from something like another podcast that I listened to in the lead up to this episode was something like Sword and Scale, which is true crime stories that are heavily stylized to be like a fictional narrative. So it does things like going, it has this third person omniscient narrative that will sometimes go into the head of the character or the victim that they're portraying as they're telling their story from their perspective. Somewhere out there in the residential neighborhood, Unseen, someone was watching Emma and Zach. She hoped this was a joke, but as the night wore on, the mysterious text became less and less amusing. I don't want to hurt a loved one. What? That comment would make anyone's hair stand on end, and it would be enough for most people to involve the police. But Emma didn't. Whether she was naive or felt she was in a safe place, she did not call the police. She clung to the idea that this was just a horrible prank and kept playing along, relaying the bizarre messages to her friends. It takes these kind of creative liberties with the story that you wouldn't find in journalism, but that, you know, creates this very compelling story. Sword and Scale particularly is narrated uh, fully from a script it's totally scripted and it's got sound effects going on in the background it's got ominous music it's more of like a radio drama is how i would describe it however it is still true crime in the sense that it's telling a true story about a crime that happened we would be remiss if we didn't mention a subgenre of true crime and i don't know how exactly we could maybe come up with a definition for this where where we would fit in things like My Favorite Murder, the podcast, or Last Podcast on the Left. I see right. those two as being kind of very similar formats where you have usually two, two or three people who are in the studio uh, reading off of a little bit of a script, basically providing like a book report of a crime that happened in the past. And the other person who's in the... So one person does the reading of the crime that happened, kind of tells the story. And then the other person's in the studio to do like reaction shots, right? Or to get the kind of... It serves as the basis for riffing and having a conversation about a crime that happened. They're usually yucking it up quite a bit too. There's a lot of gags and gags and gaffes that happen in shows like that. So this is very different from like serial or making a murder. Yes. Which are much more serious treatments of these cases versus like my favorite murder is like crazy criminal of the week. And like, let's kind of talk through what happened in their case and react to it. And yeah. make jokes about it. Yeah. Well, I, I will say that sometimes my fascination with true crime makes me feel a little bit guilty. Yeah. Um, especially when, when yeah, we are just kind of making jokes about the theories we have about John Bonet and the pineapple the night before. And it's just, I mean, then it's such a departure from real life. But, it, it I mean, it's real. It's it, This happened. And so, yeah, there's that whole element of should we feel guilty for... Not even for sensationalizing, but just for like consuming and having any level of enjoyment while we do it. 
Well, and there's an annual convention, right? Yeah. For so that's, true crime fans. That actually, so yeah, that leads kind of nicely into it, talking about fandoms and the and the ethicality of any genre. I think sometimes go uh, very well hand in hand. So I have a couple quotes from articles that I found on true crime podcasts. So uh, or and of true crime genres in general. So <laughs> this was uh, taken from a, I believe this was from a Guardian article that was talking about the the ethics of true crime podcasts and or of true crime as a genre that's kind of emerging as this viral sensation in this day and age. It says here, quote, for those who prefer a more hands-on homicide experience, there's an annual convention, CrimeCon, where you can mingle with other murder aficionados at events such as wine and crime or test your metal at an interrogation experience. You can also shop for serial killer swag on Etsy, which boasts a disturbing amount of murder merch, from coffee mugs decorated with names of famous killers to blood-spattered hair ties. So we can see that there is a fandom emerging around shows like this that do call into question, I think, as Caitlin rightly pointed out, is our fascination with this ethical? Uh, Does it actually serve a sort of useful function to be thinking about crimes in this sort of treating it as uh, uh, as an entertainment product rather than somebody's real life? That's something, you know, something that somebody had to process the death of a loved one or, you know, the trial of a loved one who may have been incorrectly imprisoned for for a crime. Plus, it's it's just creepy. I mean, my dad used to watch and be like, sweet girl, what are you watching? (laughs) Used to say that to you? Yeah. Oh, my God. Just watching a murder show. (laughs) Just just having fun. Yeah. What, what what did you say to that whenever he would whenever he would say that? I would like give him a little a little summary of the case, and he would just like shake his head, yeah. not continue to watch, leave oh, leave the room. You wouldn't just look at him ominously and just be like, "I'm taking notes, Dad." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely questionable. I think an an added layer to the ethical consideration is the way that these shows are creative for profit so not only are you making light of you know a case that was tragic in other people's lives but you're also making money off of it after the fact yes Um, and this is something that's been pointed out about some of these shows is that like they'll be in the middle of like a hilarious riff about yeah about someone getting stabbed in the head and then go immediately into you know an ad for just coffee.coop or whatever yep you know And, and the, you know, and, and it's just very jarring to kind of realize that this is such a cash cow. And, I mean, to that we could add discussion of, like, how much streaming services are cashing in on this. Absolutely. Um, it seems like, uh, like Netflix and Hulu are coming out with new true crime shows constantly, cashing in on this trend. And, yeah, what does that do to commodify our consumption of just horrible past events for pleasure i mean but it is it is kind of amazing to see some of the dialogue that comes out of it because a lot of these cases are unsolved and then and then people just regular people are all creating their own theories and separating into camps and you know just kind of trying to it's somewhat in earnest investigate on their own time Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean, I think that's where so that's like kind of the critical potential of this, which is and I think especially in the case of like serial and from what I know of making a murderer, it actually has the effect of 
making people more skeptical of the criminal justice system, potentially, and more invested in seeking justice for people they see as railroaded. Like in the case of Adnan Syed, I think that's how a lot of people reacted to Serial. Like, oh, this actually gives me a human face to put to like something that was very abstract before, but I actually heard this person speak for 12 episodes. And so, you know, I have a better sense of how this affects real people and how their voices are excluded from the process. And I think there's almost another subgenre now that sort of explores this possibility that, yeah, anybody can get blamed for something like this. Like the night of kind of goes into that. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. I'm not familiar with that one. So it was an HBO miniseries, and, you know, you're with who you think is a protagonist, and it's it's sort of unclear what happens that, that first night in that first episode, but I think there are drugs involved, so it, it's just, it's not clear to him or to the audience, but he is charged with a murder, and so... So at the, well, spoiler, I don't know if I should. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert, at the end, you know, it's kind of falling in line with this new convention. It's still ambiguous in the end, but, you know, it really poses the question, like, what if this happened to me? Like, what if I, it just looked really bad for me and, and I was innocent, but, you know, all evidence pointed to the contrary. Yeah. And is this based on a real, a true story? This one, no. Oh, okay. So this isn't necessarily a true... It, it has some of the genre features of a true crime genre, or but it's not actually based on a true crime, yeah. necessarily. Yeah, this so one this is comes fiction. Back, so this comes back to the genre question. You know, if we have an ecumenical definition, we might say that that, because it explores crime in a true way, even if it's not actually a true story... We might still include it in our definition, um, especially if it has a lot of those other formal features of like reenactments and, you know, a, a compelling narrative structure. Absolutely. So, so to this point, I would turn to there's a definition of true crime that I garnered from an article, uh, an academic article by Mark Seltzer, who has written critically on the topic of true crime and mass media. This is an article entitled Murder Media Modernity. Uh, Seltzer writes, true crime is a part of our contemporary wound culture, a culture, or at the least, a cult of commiseration. If we cannot gather in the face of anything other than crime, violence, terror, trauma, and the wound, we can at least commiserate. That is, as the novelist Chuck Palahniuk concisely expresses in his novel Survivor, we can at least, quote, all be miserable together. This is, as it were, the model of nation as support group. So in some sense, what seems to tie all of these true crime stories together is this sense of commiseration with others' pain, right? Uh, with feeling vicariously something that could potentially happen to us or something that we have a sense could happen to us in our own lives. I personally think that that seems to be what the big draw is for people to the true crime genre is it represents a potential rupture from the mundanities of everyday life, exploring the radical possibility of just awful, terrible things that could happen to a person, like murdered in the most visceral, gruesome way. But exploring it from the safety of your couch. Precisely, right. yes. Yeah, and, and I think that gets into back into the question of subgenres as well, because I think there are some that are appealing to people for that reason, for the reason of, 
I want to experience the terror of like uh, being involved in this kind of like grisly crime situation without actually having to experience it in the flesh. But then I think shows like Serial and Murder Mountain and Making a Murderer are appealing to people's need to like learn more about the arbitrariness and like vicissitudes of the criminal justice system. And it's almost like learning the truth about crime as opposed to like experiencing a crime in a way that feels truthful, yeah. if, if that distinction makes any sense. Absolutely. It's now that you mention that it's, it almost feels like kind of the inverse of what I think before uh, previously has been called the CSI effect which is another important, I think it's an important contrast in terms of what genres can do to affect our social and political reality, right? So the CSI effect, I would have to go and dig up an actual article on this to give the concrete definition, but it was essentially when crime procedurals, which I think we can perhaps distinguish from true crime, uh, crime procedurals like Law and Order or like CSI, Crime Scene Investigators, or other kinds of shows that uh, that NYPD blue. NYPD blue things that fictionalized the the experiences of people who worked in crime labs who were investigating murders we had that same kind of sense of you know vicarious uh, you know feeling the the terror of something that happened to a normal everyday person but we're viewing it from the lens of a crime scene investigator and in addition we're sort of this is kind of going back to what Caitlin said at the beginning. We feel like these kind of armchair experts now. Now that we know like what, oh, this is what crime scene investigators use to prove someone is guilty. You know, and eventually they just, there's this kind of uh, deus ex machina moment at the end of every CSI episode where the criminal is confronted with all of this mounting uh, uh, the physical evidence against them and they, you know, break down and confess and then they're carted off to jail and justice is served. This is the tear strip from the box of plastic wrap that you used to kill her. Keith borrowed some plastic. I, I didn't know what it was for. Your DNA was on it. It's mine. I'm sure I touched it. Your saliva. Your saliva is on it, Tommy, because you kissed Nikki while you were smothering her. That's right. It was unbelievable. You did that on purpose, huh? That's what I do, Tommy. And you made it. Very, very easy for me. I found the ultimate thrill. Looking into someone's eyes as they die. You know, Tommy, sending a little worm like you to jail for the rest of your life, that will be my ultimate thrill. It's been it's been discussed previously that the effect that that actually has in reality is to give people an inflated sense of what physical evidence and DNA evidence actually proves in right. court. Right. Juries have this kind of outsized sense of what essentially it means to have DNA evidence, you know, within the proximity of a, of a crime scene. Uh, we take that to be sort of damning in ways that, you know, may not necessarily be true. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think a reverse thing is, is happening now with these more recent shows that is actually causing people to question some of those processes. So to have less confidence that like traditional investigative methods will produce truth and produce just outcomes. And I would argue that's a good thing because I think that faith was misplaced. Yeah. So making a murder, I think, has probably one of the most... 
it's it's probably the most visceral example of what you just said, Calvin, about feeling like there's a misplaced trust in evidence gathering, particularly in the gathering of confessions. Mm-hmm. There's and you know, spoiler alert for one of the things that gets uh, this is kind of one of the major plot points in. I shouldn't even call it a plot point. It's one of the. It's a thing that really happened that making a murderer talks about. It's about the uh, the forced confession of Brendan Dassey, who is the uh, nephew of Stephen Avery, the person who is on trial for murder. Brendan Dassey eventually gets uh, kind of roped in on the conviction. There, he is convicted as an accomplice to the murder. They play most of the videotape or a lot of the videotape from his confession to police officers, and it is incredibly excruciating to watch because you see essentially the ways in which the police officers are essentially doing entrapment like they are like coercing a confession out of this uh, you know he's like a 17 year old kid in this in this interrogation room they've just yanked him out of school they're kind of putting him through this whole rigmarole but i I gotta i gotta believe in you and if i don't believe in you i can't go to bat for you okay you're not tell us what happened your mom said you'd be honest with us she's behind you 100 percent no matter what happens here that's what she said because she thinks you know more too we're in your corner we already know what happened. They'll tell us exactly. Don't lie. We can't say it for you, Brad, okay? Now, let's be honest. What did he tell you? What did he what show did you? What did you see and what did he tell you? Let's be honest, your Brad. If you helped him, it's okay. Because he was telling you to do it. You didn't do it on your own. Think about it and be honest. So just be honest. We already know. He's obviously not holding anything back from you. He had you come over to see this. You know, like this is a very visceral example of the ways in which justice can be miscarried at the hands of, you know, people like the police officers who had him in that interrogation room. And I think in that sense, that's a genre trope that that largely can work in in the service of greater social justice. Coerced confessions. Yeah, in the form of exposing that this is a real thing that happens. Yeah. Now that we have the videotapes public. Because people are like, why would you why would you admit you did something when you didn't do it? Yeah, exactly. Confess to a crime you didn't. But then we understand why. Because we can see it. When you can see how terrified this kid is that they you know, they put him in this confession room and they're doing all these really horrible tactics to get him to say whatever they want him to say. They're essentially putting the story into his mouth. Right. And it's a good expose of like an example of that really happening and it does it does happen all the time central park five and they're actually yes. netflix is actually coming out with a new iteration of that story which yeah. i'm very excited for i've heard i've heard good reviews of it so far so. yeah and and i guess this this is probably a good place to transition into the question of why why has true crime become so big recently and i would say that what you were just describing about making a murderer made me think of Really that like since 2013, 2014 to now, we've been living in the era of viral police brutality videos being shared and what that has done to expose the problems of the criminal justice system. And I, I think it's made like, for instance, if we didn't have the video of Staten Island police officers killing Eric Garner, we would likely just have their narrative of what of what happened during that arrest that he resisted and they were forced to kill him something like that but we have this media product that provides a different perspective or at least op- opens up the dialogic space for 
potential alternative narratives of what happened. And I don't think we would be having like this same level of popularity and fascination with true crime documentaries and true crime series if these real life political events like hadn't been happening as well. I think there's a there's a more general interest in like, no, I want to see it for myself. Like, I don't trust the system in terms of the narratives it produces about crime. I want to see journalists, you know, produce alternative narratives. And I want to see and I want to be involved, as you were talking about, Caitlin, earlier, like th- this idea of going online and like doing the digging yourself to try to piece together your own narrative of what might have happened. Yeah, I think we're living in a time when people are just more skeptical of everything. Yeah. But at the same time, just to tie it to something lighter, I think also TV is just really high quality now. And Mm -hmm. the reporting on some of these new true crime shows is just really rigorous and, and worth, you know, investing in. Yeah. I think that, I think that both of those can be married quite nicely, right? There is now this sort of like technological and sort of democratic means for producing, producing different kinds of media like this, whether it's in podcast form or, or in, you know, uh, or Netflix is kind of providing this, uh, a different platform to do that as well, as well as that sort of increasing skepticism of the justice system and of, you know, the ways in which we talk about crime. I don't know. I think that in a larger sense, too, though, it's still there. There's still that lingering undercurrent of our kind of morbid fascination with different pathologies, too. Right. I think that's that's always kind of what has made true crime compelling is seeing the extremes of humanity, like what's what there's human potential to do great evil. Right. And and this is particularly dealing with like the murder shows. Right. Not not as much on the on the journalism side, although, you know, there's some of that, too. But just exploring the exploring the ideas that, you know, that these grisly kinds of murders can be carried out. There is a sort of morbid fascination, I think, that comes with that, whether it's just because of all the because podcasts have kind of blown up that we've seen a contemporaneous rise in in true crime just because it's it in some ways i do think that you know podcasts do provide a good medium for facilitating the telling of true crime stories in addition to platforms like netflix which allow a little bit more for that you know the the episodic uh, drama and like long form storytelling to play out you no longer have to fit it into the constraints of a two-hour documentary like you would if you're you know errol morris for example you can now expand this out into a season's worth of 12 episodes that you can kind of watch at your own pace same with a podcast right so i think the media ecology that we have also kind of plays a role in this as well for sure I guess my question is, do we have a greater tolerance now for morbid, grisly human behavior and the extremes of human behavior? And is that producing a desire for this type of content where, I mean, it it was always there. We know that true crime media existed as far back as the 1800s, but that it's kind of increased its spread and its scope and the amount of money it's making in recent times. What does that speak to culturally that we have a need for this kind of content right now? Well, I think that the the new true crime is exploring the subtleties. And so there is that morbid fascination where we're wondering what makes a person evil and how evil people operate. But then there are these questions like, can we 
see this coming? Can you spot a killer? And yes. can people who commit these heinous crimes kind of start out like the rest of us? And where does it all go wrong? Yeah. And this kind of dips a little bit back into, I just wanted to really quickly dip back into our conversation on fandoms, because I think uh, My Favorite Murder is a really interesting example of a, of a show to explore the that sort of fascination with and connection with murder in your everyday life, right? So the fan base for My Favorite Murder, they call themselves murderinos. That's kind of the, the term that they've come up with to encompass the identity of somebody who is a fan of My Favorite Murder. And they, I, I, a lot of the community, it seems, is based on Facebook. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't able to get access to any of the Facebook groups because they're all invite only. And they are specifically, I think it's, depending on where you are, you have to a- answer some questions about the show. So you have to like prove your, <laughs> you have to prove your, your insider knowledge on. You uh, have to actually appear on the show as a murderer <laughs> yeah. whom they discuss. In order to, in order to take so you have to, to do, weed yes. people out. You have exactly. to do murder. You gotta, you gotta do, I mean, you gotta do something. Right. Um, so, but essentially these are all closed Facebook groups that are dedicated to usually geographically based. So for example, we have a murdering of Pittsburgh Facebook group here in the city that is basically dedicated to a lot of different things everything from discuss you know discussing hobbies that people have in common doing like group meetups for people who have their fandom of the show in common and then in addition to that also doing that kind of armchair investigation of weird stuff that happens around the city it's I, I mean an uncharitable reading would be that it's sort of creating this culture of paranoid people who are all who are kind of over investigating the vicissitudes of their mundane lives and kind of trying to make them a little bit more extreme and sensational and interesting. But in addition, I guess, I, you know, depending on what's, I, I don't know what's in those Facebook groups. So, I mean, it could they're also closed. be. Yeah, they're closed. So they, you wouldn't know. You're you, not a, you're not a murderino. I'm not a, I'm not a murderino, at least not yet. It could also though be like developing within people, I guess, a critical consciousness for thinking about cases that are open in the city right now too, and whether they're, whether justice is being carried out. Yeah, I'm pessimistic about that. I, I mean, think I that kind when, of am too. But. I think that when you hyperfixate on murder, I mean, too much of anything. Too much too of much anything of a, much of a, is yeah. a bad thing. But also, <laughs> is murder ever a good thing? Though? <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, well, that that's a subject for a different episode. Sure. Is um, murder good? That'll be our next reverb episode. Yeah, but I think that if you're really interested in like interrogating the criminal justice system, you're more likely to focus on nonviolent crimes there are just other uh, corruption i mean there are other categories of crimes i feel like being like no i'm gonna get the murderers better than the cops usually you just want more cops to do more harsher murder solving and and this is like your your way of like pretending to be a cop just without a gun uh cop plus wine and like a funny <laughs> fan name. Uh, so you but, don't think uh, that if you love true crime, perhaps you should consider becoming a lawyer. It, it, or is it like just doctor. because you like house doesn't mean you should become, become a doctor. A doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's That's a good comparison. Really, you know, uh, uh, acceptable training. I don't think you could just listen to, to 200, my favorite murder episodes and, and, and become a criminal lawyer. That's what my dad said when he would walk in. He would he would encourage me to to go to law school, but but here I am. 
But here, here you, you are. are. Yeah, yeah. We're glad you're here. Yes. <laughs> At least you're not on the Murderinos podcast. Yeah. Not yet. Uh, not, not, in the, yet. not in the closed group yet. Yeah. So. One thing that I'm curious to see is, will we see, and I know this has kind of been my hobby horse on this episode, so I'm sorry that I keep going, bringing it back to this, but will we start seeing true crime documentaries that perhaps reopen like cold police brutality cases? Ooh. I mean, I think that would be really fascinating. For instance, like the case of Michael Brown's killing by Darren Wilson, where like a lot of the cases where charges were not brought by prosecutors in different jurisdictions, will there be journalists who are interested in like using this new medium or new genre, which for whatever problems and, you know, ethical uncertainties really do get a lot of people to hyper-focus on a particular case and to be inspired by a case and to be very interested in pursuing it. You know, will this be used for further justice in situations where maybe justice hasn't been served in the past? Like, will true crime become a new vehicle for interrogating high-level crime, white-collar crime, like other kinds of corruption that maybe we don't think about as under the category of crime because it's not as sensational as a murder? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and I think that there are there are some pieces of evidence out there that that this could be a direction that audience interest is moving in. I mean, part of me wants to be pessimistic and say that that the white collar crime and other things doesn't have the same kind of commercial draw as as, you know, murder so clearly does. But, but there was that movie, The Big Short. The Big and... Short got, yeah, no, I think I think that there's definitely a, th- there could potentially be an interest in that uh, from, you know, from different dimensions of the population. I'm also thinking about, I think, I, I didn't listen to the entire thing, but there was a podcast called uh, Dirty John that was more about, I, I think that this, I, did you listen to this one at all, Caitlin? I did, I did. Yeah, so this is more just like dealing of dealing with the, the like different kinds of crimes that are committed by like a particularly nasty just like man who kind of represents all these sort of reprehensible aspects of like patriarchy and all these other terrible things, so I mean. Yeah, there's a bunch of high profile cases that I think like got their fair share of true crime reporting like Bernie Madoff, Theranos. Oh yeah. Oh my oh yeah, they're they're making a Theranos movie, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Well, and, and this raises the genre question again like would we consider like the Fire Festival documentaries true oh, crime doc? I mean they were ah. they were almost they were almost <laughs> dramatized and edited very similar to true crime documentaries. Of course they weren't as episodic and like twisty and turny but true crimes were definitely done at the fire festival absolutely yeah true crimes well and this is so yeah i mean i think to that extent there is a definite cultural fascination with a grift and i and i think that that's something that we could start seeing a lot more of i think the fire festival documentaries are a good harbinger of the potential that that has as well as theranos was a gigantic grift that is really really interesting like it like a lot of good journalism came out about that and yeah i mean i think yeah. in that regard there's definitely potential for that to be like a new style of, or subgenre of true crime as well yeah because sure. that's in there you've got healthcare and yeah. finance and oh, yeah. it's just it's, it is jam-packed it touches a lot yeah absolutely sure well we would like to thank you all for joining us on this very. I don't. I don't know how to strike the tone right. I just can't. I just can't keep up a serious facade. One day you'll be a murderino, bro. One. 
For now, you're just a bro. God help me. Yeah. And for now, I'm just a bro. So anyway. Until then. Until then. Uh, we want to thank you all for being with us. We had a lot of fun doing this episode. Until next time, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Our show today was produced by Caitlin Rossi, Calvin Pollock, and Alex Helbert, with editing work by Alex and Calvin. Reverb's co-producers at large are Colleen Storm, Sophie Wadzak, and Ryan Mitchell. Our graphic design manager is Kari Van Nortwick, and our social media manager is Lizzie Donaldson. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.